0: Hello, and welcome back to Outward, Slate's podcast about everything LGBTQ. I'm Paola Shaw, Outward's lead producer, and typically I'm in the end credits, not behind the mic. But this week, I'm stepping in for Jules and Brian for a very special Valentine's Day episode. My credentials? Well, I'm a queer lesbian, certified lover girl with a Libra Venus and a Libra rising, and a former florist. So this holiday is my bread and butter. You can ask my girlfriend or your local astrologer. And what better way to explore queer love in all of its forms than with poetry? The joy and suffering of yearning, of waxing poetic about unrequited love, articulating deeply felt overwhelming desire, it's all built into the fabric of queerness. We know intimately the barriers to loving freely that exist, that have existed, and poetry has always been there to express it all whether it's the letters that come from the long-distance romances we're known for, or the poetry of a short personals ad. Horny gay poets and writers across history have given us so much, and it's only right that we honor that history this Valentine's Day. Today, I'll be talking to Saree Jarrell Johnson, a poet and writer based in New York. Saree's first collection of poetry, Slingshot?, won the Lambda Literary Prize for Poetry in 2020, and his second collection, Watch Night, Out This Spring, won the 2023 James Laughlin Award. He was a founder of the literary journal Deaf Poet Society and the inaugural Brooklyn Public Library Poet-in-Residence. His work has appeared in the New York Times and Yale Review, among other publications. Sare is also a part of the organization Sins Invalid, a disability justice-based performance project that celebrates artists with disabilities, centralizing artists of color and queer artists. We'll hear some of Sare's poems and chat about the particular romance of queer love. But you should know— We'll be hearing poems that get a little erotic. So if you're not wearing headphones, here's your heads up. We'll get into it all after the break. Welcome back. I'm now joined by poet Saray Jarrell Johnson. Happy Valentine's Day, Sarai.
1: Happy Valentine's Day, Palace. How are you?
0: I'm good. Do you celebrate Valentine's Day?
1: Oh boy, do I ever. I love Valentine's Day. I am like a pink and white and red type of girly. I love that for me. Um, I'm also a Pisces, so I feel like this is when I really feel the Pisces season brewing in my life.
0: Definitely. How do you like to celebrate?
1: Well, it is uh, a day that I, I, in the traditional style, like I like a romantic dinner. I like a very lavish dessert. I like a lobster situation. Um, yeah, I really love Valentine. I would like to put on a... Uh, early aughts, late 90s, romantic black comedy, you know, on on Tubi probably and just really snuggle down.
0: Yeah, I have too many Libra placements to not love Valentine's Day, so I'm in the same boat. Do you have like any hot takes on queering Valentine's Day at all? A little outside the traditional? Do I have any hot takes on queering Valentine's Day? You
1: know, I think... That romantic love has its own queerness anyway. Um, Like, I very much appreciate... I'm on TikTok. I'm a millennial of TikTok. And I think it's very interesting, like, the takes on romance and, like, why we have romance at all, right? Like, if uh, traditionally love or marriage is an economic proposition, the idea that uh, relationships would be about love to me is already a little bit queer, And I also think that any opportunity to be a queer in love is just a nice opportunity. As a gay person, as a, like a trans person, it's like there are so many obstacles to love. So any opportunity to just really be able to show my love and affection and adoration for the people in my life, I feel like it's already inherently queered because it's already so fraught.
0: Absolutely. I'm so glad we get to talk to you about this today. I'm, like, very excited. And it makes sense with all this love of love that you are a love poet. Can you tell us about the different
1: kinds of love you write about? Absolutely. So my first book, Slingshot, is about erotic love. It is very erotic. Um, it is also about, like, <sighs> loving people uh, and not knowing whether or not love should be a feeling or an action. Um and like the protagonist in Slingshot in Machine of Mahogany and Bronze is very caught up on feelings of passion and uh really feels like that is the essence of love. And to the detriment of his own uh, ability to love other people through his actions and through his commitments. Um especially the people in his family right because love can be very difficult (laughs) um in so many different ways right um even like thinking about like queering valentine's day or whatever it's like well if you have like a very complex relationship with your parents right like what how does love get crossed up there like if you have a very complex relationship with yourself how does love get crossed up there and And that's really what I look at in Watch Night is like more familial love. There's some familial love or lack of love in Slingshot. But Watch Night um, is really a book about wanting love from family and having to create families that love you. And so I think that that has been on my mind. Yeah, like thinking about what kinds of love can survive the rise of fascism, the continuation of fascism is really close to my heart.
0: Yeah. Love inhabits so many different dimensions of our lives. And I think that exploring that through poetry is so interesting. And I've always thought of poetry as like the queerest corner of writing. It's like the smaller percentage of an overall culture of writing. It usually has its own spaces. It's something you know exists, but you might struggle to find out how to build community around it. And, like, kind of in a joking way, it's something a lot of people explore in college, you know? (laughs) So I guess with those sort of associations in mind, what are your thoughts on poetry as a queer medium or maybe just inherently queer?
1: Yeah, I do think poetry is inherently queer. I don't think many things are inherently queer either. Like, I'm not, like—yeah, I'm not. I'm not that way. I did— like things you experiment in college I was a queer theory undergrad um so uh yes thought about a lot about that but I think what makes poetry queer is like the fact that it's inherently spiritual right like I I personally think genre is kind of fake but I think form is very real and choosing brevity when the fashionable style is length it like just creates lots of possibilities to choose to be outside of what society values. Society does not value poetry, right? It is a feminized art form. It is an outsider art form, even when you are on the inside. When you look at the history of poetry, just generally, like, poets are often living on the fringes. And that's just, that's sort of where we belong, right? Um, The poetry of insiders uh, often is even, like, outsiders are inside i think that that's something that i've always been struck with like uh lord byron or oscar wilde where it's like you are inside of english society y'all are like rich people people who are coming from families that are doing fine (laughs) that are not enslaved right you're finding yourself still on the outside right because you know lord byron in addition to being kind of an asshole um you know he has this limp (laughs) he has his club foot uh and you know he's bi and oscar wilde for all accounts is, you know, by as well and imprisoned because of it, right? So even when you are an insider, there's just like this constant act of negotiating how to speak to everyone from the farthest corner of society.
0: Well, today we're going to get into your poetry a bit and we're going to start with an erotic poem from your book Slingshot called Doppelganger. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about it before you read it
1: sure uh doppelganger is exactly what it says there's nothing um (laughs) there's nothing complex about doppelganger it is about wanting to fuck somebody in a motel and and fucking someone in a motel that's what it's about um and about uh wondering if you know your lover just like wondering if you'll ever know your lover, if, if they're even knowable, right? Like I really believe that like people are fundamentally unknowable, And I also believe that life imitates art. I think that this poem was an attempt, like a lot of poems, the most erotic poems in Slingshot are attempts to create some space for the way that I, as a fag, love, right? Like there's just not that many depictions of people like me. Um, There's just not that much art and that much conversation about people like myself. And I think that it actually, forecloses upon the possibility uh, because life imitates art. And so, this is one more of my attempts in Slingshot. Doppelganger. Queer utopians think human beings are perfectible, but we are not. We're just correctable. In an hourly motel, I recall that Kim Adonisio poem about tattoos and ask you how many you have, although I count 14 every time you doze and add your spit to the mysterious stains on the pillows, but the ink proliferates in twilight's sticky gold. Is a cover-up one or two or three tattoos? And how many about your forced disappearances? And how many about the appearance of manhood? And how many about being a man? With his face buried in pillows, a short black man hydroplaning down our impossible. I hate how much I love when you suck my toes, and I despise you for making me beg. That's why I can't know you. That's why I stay perpetually ahead of your judgment. You look just like me when I'm fucking you from behind. I'll suck that shrimp cock to the glove pot plus one extra watt before I figure it out. I don't know God anymore, but let's stay here on our knees and wait for him to come.
0: I wanted to talk about this idea of a doppelganger because... You know, you said that the idea of a doppelganger is really simple. And I was also just thinking about how, like, the idea of being with a doppelganger or someone who looks like you is such a queer trope of dating. People fall into that trap a lot. So I guess with that perspective, could you talk more about what you're thinking when you're writing a poem about a doppelganger of somebody?
1: Yeah, well, the thing about a doppelganger is you're not supposed to see your own. You'll you'll die. That's like a harbinger of death. In fact, I'm trying to remember who it was. Like, there is a poet. Um, whose wife saw his doppelganger while he was at sea and he was, he was dead like soon thereafter. Like people see their doppelgangers, they pass away. And, um, I think that for me, it's about fear of being seen, right? You don't want somebody to see you, um, as you are, right? You don't like you regard it as like, uh, imperiling. And I think, well, the person I wrote this poem about certainly felt like it was imperiling, right? And so really thinking about, like, what does it mean to be seen, right? It's not like, you know, we talk about good representation or bad representation, right? But, like, the feeling of being seen is uncomfortable. It's not fun, (laughs) <laughs> it isn't fun. And I think that like, you know, some of like the queer like doppelbanger trope comes from the extreme beauty standards that queers live under. Right. So like where it's like, I like you because you look like me. And that means I look good. I'm attracted to you. Right. Um, And I think that in queer community, having a beautiful partner can become a status symbol in a way that feels very toxic. <laughs> like having a partner who society believes is beautiful, right? Who's like uh, jacked or tall enough or, you know, looks a certain way, has a certain body type can be such a status symbol for people that it can be, I think, a little gross. I think that that's one of the, you know, I don't have a personal identity as queer. I'm gay. Um, like, I guess, like, literally, like many gay people, I am by. But like, you know, on a day to day basis, queer is not something I identify with. Like, I'm not being like, yes, as a queer person, that's something way that you're supposed Referred me and i think in part because like i really do think queerness is something we're striving to be right we're striving to live in a world where you know gender isn't the primary factor on which people are judged um or oppressed right like that where everyone can love the way that they want to love and live the way that they want to live I, I don't think we live in that kind of world i don't i think that like there are so many barriers to love and i think that you know not identifying as, you know, capital Q queer is one of the ways I remind myself that there is so far to go. The way that we talk about looking for one another or falling in love is so rarely, you know, so rarely meets the aspirations set up by the term queer Um, that I think that really closely looking at each other and really wanting to please each other and, you know, not to be religious, but I am religious, you know, seeing God in each other um, is like about as close as I can get, right? Um, And I think that, you know, Slingshot, really regards the erotic as religious, really does regard love as a religious and spiritual experience. And I think most of my work does, because that's what I believe.
0: Yeah, the desirability politics of the queer community are quite intense. And I appreciate you bringing that layer into this conversation. You've done a lot of activism around sexuality and Sins Invalid, a disability justice-based performance project you're a part of, looks at the taboo of disabled pleasure, embodiment, and eroticism quite directly. So I'm wondering if you could continue to speak uh to the power of eroticism in a political context.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, sin started out as a disability sexuality project. So um it's definitely something close to my mind. Um, in college, I was a sexual, you know, sexuality educator, particularly for lesbians at the time. Um, and I would give these workshops. And I think that like the less information you have about what sex is supposed to look like for you, I think the better sex you probably have. And I think that's part of the problem that straight people seem to have is that like they have like their ideas of sex can be so prescriptive that like nobody's having any fun and everybody's really worried about how they look and like who's looking at them and like whether or not they're doing it right and what they don't want to, you know, like and what they don't want to be known to do and like what other people do. Right. And I think that queers are actually very lucky that we don't have as many of those prescriptions uh, cuz it makes uh, sexuality uh, a little more uh, adventurous and specific and as a disabled person i think no one knows better than disabled people all the different ways that sex can look like i remember on twitter there like uh, was this elastic chair this chair with like you know this uh, stool with elastic bands over it, and people were like why would i ever need that for sex and it's like what about want what about wanting it for sex right like what about like what if it makes your experience two percent better and that two percent was exactly what you need and i think that that is such a disabled approach to sex right like i think about like the length of a handle on a hitachi magic wand in, in fact i believe the like modern dildo was invented by a black cis disabled man you know like it is like we are always benefiting by uh, from technology meant for disabled people
0: back. I want to turn back to the poem for a second because I love the opening lines so much about being perfectible versus correctable. And the phrase queer utopians really jumped out at me. So I was wondering if you could tell us like who are queer utopians in your mind's eye and how love connects to this idea of being
1: correctable. Yeah, absolutely. I I love thinking about queer utopians. And, you know, I am a utopian. Absolutely, I'm a utopian. In fact, the town where I was born was, uh, you know, uh, I guess like an intentional community at one point called the Farrar Colony, like a utopian project where people left the city and moved to Farmy, New Jersey to figure shit out, right? So like I, I was born with that kind of spirit. But when I think of utopians, it's just like people who want the world to be perfect. And I think... The world will never be perfect, but I do think that we should do whatever we can to improve our lives and the lives of others. Like, I really do. And I also think that we have to have measures for when human beings fall short of their tallest aims. And so some of that is in that poem, too, right? Like, how much of your bullshit is about being a man? Like, how much of it is about the spaces you're not allowed to inhabit because of how people view you as a Black man, right? Like, how much of it is you limiting yourself. Um, I'm a non-binary person, right? Like, I think that my my relationship with gender is very complex. And I was raised by masculinity, so I always knew that that was not me, right? Like, I was raised by, I guess you would call, like, uh, gender non-conforming masculinities in lesbian community. And, you know, like, they were just so masculine. They They were more masculine than any men that I've still ever met, right? Like, just very, very masculine people. And, um... I always knew that was just not going to be me. <laughs> I was like, I will be a disappointment to this. And so like, uh, as someone who is a lover of men and uh, masculinities and also femininities too, um, I'm always struck by how chained up my male partners seem. It's just like, oh, this is holding you down. Like, oof. But also it's like holding you up too. And so thinking about the ways that, you know, some of the stuff that gets said in like, again, you know, capital Q queer community now about like masculinity, like sometimes it's like, oh, like you think like men and masculinities is like a title that makes sense any more than women and femmes, you know? Like not, neither of those formations make any fucking sense, um, in my opinion. But I think that we can say that like the... Regional character, I guess, of like masculinity, you know, um, in my community at least, in my black community, in my gender queer community, in my gender conforming community, in my trans masculine community, trans male community. Sometimes it's like, damn, this is making you a lot better, um, uh, but sometimes it's like, damn, this is making you a lot fucking worse, you know, and like, how do we love on? masculinity is love on men while simultaneously be like be better in the same way like how do we love on cis people right how do we i think all the time like how do i love on the cis femmes in my community while simultaneously being like stop being a fucking transphobe you're fucking transphobic and you're making my life bad and like (laughs) this rhetoric has material consequences for people um while simultaneously being like wow like you're wonderful and i love you like how do we hold those things for each other without like lifting one up to an impossible height, right? The parts that we like, oh my God, they're just so transformative and magical and perfect. And the parts that we hate, you have to get out of here. It's either pedestal or disposal. There's nothing in between. And we kind of pick out who's going to be on that pedestal and who's always going to be good and right and like who we want to just kick out entirely instead of seeing our community as imperfect and each and every one of us as needing compassion, correction, and care. Um, But we don't think that. And, you know, a lot of that is, like, certainly trans misogyny, certainly transphobia, and, like, folks who experience transphobia who may not even identify as trans. Um, And so thinking about what it is like um, to love people who live outside of what politics says is good, including queer politics, Um, what it means to be in community with others um, in a way that isn't full of pedestals and ego is something that my writing concerns. I, I don't claim that I know how to get it right or that, you know, that I am the one who is perfect. But I think that, in fact, I think that part of my writing is an exercise in stripping myself of excess ego. Like, really thinking about, like, in what ways am I imperfect? You know, (laughs) like, in what ways am I not doing this well? Like, in what ways can my work be more considered? And I actually think that that's something that shows up very strongly in my writing and is, like, my own failures. And... Uh, my own imperfections.
0: Yeah, that's very real. It may be a little obvious to bring up All About Love by Bell Hooks on Valentine's Day, but I think reading that was the first time my views on love were really challenged. So for listeners who haven't yet read it, the seminal Black feminist text breaks down the concept of love, defines it, and explores the many ways love can exist in our lives. And I was wondering, Saray, what kinds of art or poetry or writing has challenged your ideas about love? I say this
1: all the time. Everyone should be reading Sharon Bridgeforth. If you're queer and you're listening to this, please read Sharon Bridgeforth. Um, A genius. Uh, So, absolutely love counter Blues. It is about a tight-knit, post-enslavement community of queer and trans people who are just loving on each other imperfectly and well and in every single kind of way. And I think it's so beautiful. What a beautiful work. Who else has changed my view of love? Toni Morrison, of course. Um, I think Toni Morrison has probably done more for my understanding of love. Um, I had a close friend from high school and after pass away last year and i read sula t- twice in like a day i was just like sula now and um when i think of sula right that's definitely a book about loving and perfect people right like sula peace mm-hmm. look justice for now because sula peace is not a nice person like she watched her mama burn up she watched a bunch of people just pass away and she was like hmm, this is interesting but like ultimately she I think that that character figures there's going to be some point in her life that comes where she can just experience normal love and when she finds out that she can't she decides she's gonna die I think that that's so real right like that level of vulnerability you know like I think that's so relatable also the book love by Toni Morrison I think that's the one where they're sitting up in the house eating shrimp and they're just like I hate you but you can't leave and I'm not leaving so we're just gonna sit here hating each other until the end of time I think that that that's how a lot of people's loves go. And I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting more. But like sometimes that's just what the fuck it looks like. Sometimes that's just what it looks like to really love somebody. Um, Unfortunately, is sometimes it's like, well, I'm just going to have to endure the parts where this isn't as true until we get back to love or that there's love contained even in that non-love. What else? I feel like there's like so much.
0: Those are some amazing recommendations to get folks started. And I think about Toni Morrison or Bell Hooks, who I was talking about earlier, and just like a lot of feminist Black work revolving around love and community in the collective. And so I was wondering, what role has community played in learning or relearning about love for you?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. So, the book Watch Night is about a watch night party that I had for years and years and years, where I just like grabbed every black, <laughs> queer, trans person around me. I was like, "Come on, it's New Year's Eve, <laughs> time for watch night." And in part, that was because I loved to party. Uh, you know, pandemic, so less now, but like you know, like back in the day, I loved to party and. I knew that I wasn't going to be cooking on New Year's Day. So everything had to be done on watch night. Everything had to be done. And so it was my way of making sure everything was done to the point where it rewired in my head as that's when we do it, you know, growing up in the church. And, you know, uh, I grew up African Methodist Episcopalian. My great grandmother was a mother of the church. My grandmother was a church nurse. So watch night as a kid, you were sitting in church, you were sitting in church, you were praying, you were tarrying, right? Like that was what you did on watch night. And so, you know, The love and trust that all of these Black queer and trans people must have had for me, like, I'll come to your watch night party. I trust you enough to come to your watch night party and not think I'm going to get prayed over, called to the altar, right? I I trust you. I love you enough to come to this, right? Even if we weren't the closest of friends, right? Like many Black queer and trans people with a fair amount of church trauma trusted me enough to come to my watch night party. And, you know, a lot of people said to me over those years... I didn't know what it was going to be. <laughs> I didn't know what it was going was gonna to be. Um, and yeah, that was so special to me. I, I'm not a very, I'm not like very social. Like I, I have a pretty low social need. Um, I'm autistic. And so social situations can be awkward for me, but it was always a time where I was like, oh, like, This is a practice that I do in community, not just the party, but like everything around it. It's like, this is something that I do with my community. This is something that I do in community. This is a way that I practice my faith in community with the people immediately around me. And that always just meant so much to me. It always made me feel so loved.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really wonderful way into this next poem you have for us, Old Familiar. I'll let you take it away.
1: Okay, Okay. Old Familiar. When watch night breaks and we're all still together... When the cobweb shadow is sucked from the corners of last year and the house-glossed in easy tomorrows, we eat and we become a single thing. Forgetting the turn of the card so far behind us as to be before us again. Tonight we will make new promises, make love all night, then lose our tempers, drink to sway. Fuck all night and not be sweet about it neither, just to be together. And if this one texts an X or falls off the wagon again, if we forget the slip of your sweet and light of your corners, it's no such thing. We'll come back to love. We'll turn to you and listen to your song tonight, and tomorrow we'll find a way to retire the habit. Apologize tomorrow and so sincerely as to flush the hurt. We people of night runs to wood panel liquor stores, people of been turned out experience, people of sweat, People have put together, then disheveled come morning. Joy dotting each corner as we walk home in or with our finest. Next year, again. Next year, I'll plant the special morning glories, drip again in a once weed owned stamp of dirt, save seed for tomorrow in smug assumption it will come, and it will come. Corners pressing out the old ways, evil or divine, multiplying like night across the meridian. The sap that snaps us each together? The vast drumbeat of gravity that hems us up each in turn? Next year we'll learn to ride it in our stirrups, ankles turning, steer us past the futile present. So what, you got drunk again? Next year we'll meet up after the meetings, work it out together. We are your community, we love you. Call me late tomorrow or whenever. I know that the hardest part can be the night's. Maybe you don't feel it yet, but I think you turn the corner. Hark, the new year in sequins ringing her bell in the corner of the sweat-fogged room. The clock hands kiss, you turn to face me, your lips a blush across my neck until the night answers twilight's questions, then snore in wait of night again. Might as well sleep. You'll head to work at dawn tomorrow. I'll watch your eyes flicker in the cold room. Let's stay together. I wasn't sure, but now I'm certain. I see you and love your corners. Thank you for spending New Year's with my people, their skin turned glow in faint streetlight. My people, whose glory rivals the night.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today. And before we go, do you have any words for the lovers out there?
1: You know, like, keep at it. I, I think that, you know, things can be transient, but like... Why not keep going? Why not love other things? Why not love the trees? Why not love the earth? Why not love a pet? Why not love yourself? Why not love your ancestors? Why not love an idea? Why not love your art? Right? Why not? Why not love? There's no good reason, I think. Saray Jarrell Johnson is a
0: poet and writer based in New York. They have a new book, Watch Night, coming out later this year. Uh, Saray, where can listeners find you and your work?
1: I am online on Instagram at Collective Cardamancy. I'm on Twitter and TikTok as Saray Durrell.
0: All right, folks. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Outward. We're gearing up for another advice episode, and this time we're covering your poly questions. Send yours to outwardpodcast at slate.com. And please send us feedback, topic ideas at outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook or X at Slate Outward. And just a reminder, by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Working, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash outward plus. Our show was produced by me with help from senior supervising producer Daisy Rosario. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so others can find it. Goodbye, everybody. Stay gay.